Hello, I'm Rolf Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, and we are very delighted to be speaking with Professor Brian Copenhaver today, who is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Philosophy and History at UCLA, and a man who knows a thing or two about all things hermetic. So, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Hugely appreciated. Well, thank you, Earl. It's, it's wonderful to be with you here this morning and talking about something that has interested me for a long time. On that note, for those who don't know, out of a very long and very rich catalog of published works, two stand out to me in this context. One is your English translation of the Corpus Hermeticum, which came out in 1992, just called Hermetica. Well, it has a longer title, but that's the the kernel. And more recently, you've put out a book, mm-hmm. Magic in Western Culture from Antiquity to the Enlightenment, um, which isn't about the Hermetica, although the Hermetica appear, um, but which will certainly be of interest to our listeners. Um, mm-hmm. So I think your your English Hermetica was a big milestone in the scholarship. It wasn't the first bringing of the Hermetica into English, but it was it's definitely the first one that modern historians can comfortably use and quote and work with without, you know. So there are problems, like G.R.S. Mead, for example, did a very creditable work in many ways, but he's a th- member of the Theosophical Society and he has an agenda and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And you start your book with an introduction, which is, I feel like, still maybe the best general introduction to Hermetica. And you begin your introduction with Egypt, historical a historical look at Egypt from the Pharaonic period through the Persian occupation, the Ptolemaic, the Roman, East Roman, Islamic, well, mm-hmm. the Christian, the rise of Christianity. So, what informed the decision to do that? Well, the practical decision was that um, I had written the introduction without that the, those first two sections, um, um, and I was focused mainly on the um, the background to the development of serious study of the Hermetica, particularly in the 19th and 20th centuries. But one of the people who read the book um, for the press, um, Tony Grafton, um, very wisely recommended that I add um, um, some some material that would frame the Hermetica historically in their time and place. And so I did. So that's why I did it. And I'm glad I did, because I think that in, in the responses that I've had to the book over the last, um, uh, the last, it'll be what, coming on to 30 years, that's, I think, the, a part of it that a lot of people appreciate more than anything else. Some other people, you know, the specialists, for example, are interested in uh, the latter part where I talk about how this particular scholar in late 19th century Germany had this view and some other scholar in early 20th century France had this view. But I think the putting it in its time and place, which in effect means putting it in Roman Egypt, that's been very valuable for some people, most people. I think it's very valuable. It's not that it was your idea to do that, but it has been... No. It has been... It's an idea that has come in and out of favor. The idea that there was anything... Egyptian at all in the Hermetica was strongly mm-hmm. poo-pooed by Festugier, who is a very important link in That's the right. chain of scholarship. Although Reitzenstein had had supported it, no, earlier. And right. then yeah. the pendulum yeah, swung that, back again. Yeah, that's right. The um when at, at by the time Festugier was writing 
people who had his sort of background, you know, who were expert classicists and just first-rate Hellenists and, you know, readers of, of, of Greek texts and, and, and manuscripts, they had been made, as it were, sort of gun-shy about the very idea of an Egyptian setting for anything. Because, for one thing, Egypt belonged to the Egyptologists, and it was a very, very closed-off sort of specialization that, that nobody else really could venture into, mainly because of the language and the script in which the language scripts, in which the language was written. So classicists came to regard notions like Reichenstein's about a, an Egyptian setting for the Hermetica as untethered speculation, and they were scared off, basically, by it, and simply weren't prepared to take the, the alternative seriously. And then, of course, after World War II, there was also a, a very, very strong development of scholarship about Roman Egypt, and particularly about the city of Alexandria. And that wealth of information enabled people like Mahay and Falden, people who have done first-rate work on the Hermetica, it, it enabled them to see it in a very different framework. Mm. And uh, the Nag Hammadi discovery comes in here too, because we now can integrate a yep. another big Hermetic tractate and some other bits and bobs that are sort of related texts into the the whole corpus and that, of and Hermetica. that's absolutely crucial of course the the nag hamadi texts were under such sharp scrutiny and were a buy-in were of such deep interest to people working on biblical religion or you know, christianity but also late jewish religion that it brought interest by those people to bear on these texts um, with, at a level that it hadn't seen before. The notion that there are links or resonances or reflections or whatever you want to call them between the Hermetica and, for example, the, the Greek New Testament, that wasn't a new discovery after World War II. People had noticed that um, before going, going way back. But it got a new kind of attention. Um, you're absolutely right, because of these enormous archaeological discoveries, mainly Nagamati, which uncovered uh, hermetic writings in the company of other writings. And really, it was the combination of the Nag Hammadi archaeology and before it, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which brought enormous scholarly and popular attention to bear um, on these things. So indirectly, popular interest in living religions, namely Christianity, but also Judaism, led to mm -hmm. a new popular, or at least a new scholarly interest with popular repercussions in this dead religion, this ancient religion, hermetism, if we want to call it that. And that the, the specter of hermetism as a religion brings me to my, maybe my next question. But before we get to my next question, let me ask you, how would you define hermetica? What is the scope of the body of texts from antiquity that we want to call hermetica? It's an article of religion with me not to define things like the Hermetica, because I don't think they're susceptible of definition. Good answer. Um, I think they can be described. Okay. I don't, I don't think they can be defined. I, things that can be defined are things like triangles. Um, I see. Um, that, you know, a triangle has what we might call an essence. Right? But things like the Hermetica can only be described, um, and I would describe them as a body of texts which 
to a certain extent accidentally, but not altogether accidentally, happened to have been transmitted over the centuries under a certain heading. And the heading is constituted mainly by the names of a number of people, Hermes Trismegistus being the most important of them, but there are a number of others too. So it's a, it's a collection of texts. And once you say that, then the next step is to say, well, what are these texts about? I think the texts are mainly about two things. On the one hand, they're about what I would call popular devotional literature. Popular devotional literature in the same sense that if you walk into a church and you see a hymn book, um, that hymn book is an artifact of popular devotional literature or, or a prayer book. It's not popular in the sense that a TV show is popular, right? But it's popular in the sense that it's meant to be used by non-experts. Right. Um, what it's meant to be used by non-experts for is a certain kind of religious devotion. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is that some of the texts involved, while they address or claim the patronage of the same group of people, like Hermes Trismegistus, they, they really have a, a different ambition and that ambition is to tell people how to do things and so their content rather than being devotional is technical technical here not in the sense of um, not in the way that for example suppose you had a, a wiring diagram for that right. microphone in front of you that wiring diagram would be a, a technical item in, in that sense they're not technical in that way they're technical in that they provide information about and to a certain extent instructions for various techniques. So best example would be the hermetic writing which is called the Quranides, um, which typically begins with a paragraph or two saying the text you're going to read has the authority of these various people, the hermetic cast of characters. And then what you get is you get long lists of stones, plants, animals, so on and so forth, in alphabetical order. And then you're told how to use these items, um, the stones, the plants, the other organic items, how to use them for various purposes. Those purposes mainly have to do with health and well-being, physical well-being. So you're shown techniques and you're shown the materials that you're going to need to proceed with these techniques, so they're technical in that sense. So those are the two main branches of the literature. One branch is devotional, and the other branch is technical, but technical in that sense. Right. Um, so in the podcast so far, when we were looking at the origins of Hellenistic astrology, we've already encountered the so-called Hermes text, which is lost, but we know existed, which was a very early Egyptian mm -hmm. astrological procedural mm -hmm. text. So this would right. also fit under that technical right. mm -hmm. um, side of things. And we exactly. know, if from no other source, from Zosimus of Panopolis, who wrote in the 4th century, whom we'll be covering, that mm -hmm. Hermes was also an authority on alchemy, which means he probably wrote a lot of recipes and things like that and procedural things. So this is all technical hermetica. But we haven't talked at all about the theoretical side of things. And that's really where you come in, in a way, because you translated the Corpus Hermeticum, which is a corpus of almost entirely theoretical Hermetica, right? They're not our only theoretical Correct. Hermetica. We have others, like the Core Cosmo, preserved by Stobias, and uh, the mm -hmm. the Eighth Reveals the Ninth from Nag Hammadi. But this is our biggest kind mm -hmm. of swage mm -hmm. of these texts. 
Could you tell us about the corpus as a corpus? Not in rigorous detail, but just mm. the general story of how we think this corpus might have, when it might have been written. Obviously, we can't date it really, but an educated guess on that maybe. How we think it might have become a corpus, the state of the text, that sort of thing. Well, as, as you just said, with regard to one of the astrological pieces, some of it might go back as far as the, the 4th or the 5th century before the Common Era. And then um, almost all of it was complete in some sense. In some sense, there's a lot of qualification there by this, let's say, a thousand years later, by the 5th century um, of the Common Era. The qualification is that during the Middle Ages, um, uh, first of all, Muslims and then Latin uh, and Greek writing Christians responding to Muslims developed their own corpora of, of hermetic literature, which mimicked the material that had been transmitted in, mainly in Greek, but also in Latin and Armenian and Coptic and, and, and other languages. I had started in talking about these texts by making the distinction between devotional and technical. When I use the word theoretical in my book um, as distinct from technical, there I'm talking about also about the devotional side of the of the literature. So what what do, what do I mean by saying that that it's devotion? Well, it's because the devotion, the the things that people are are meant to do as people involved in a religious practice, that these actions have a theoretical grounding. And the theoretical grounding, loosely speaking, is what philosophers of the same period, uh, particularly Greek philosophers, called metaphysics, um, cosmology, cosmogony, uh, moral philosophy, mainly those. But if you look at a hermetic text, which is substantially both devotional and, th and theoretical, like Corpus Hermeticum One or Corpus Hermeticum 13, and you see what it has to say about these issues, about cosmology, about um, um, what, what, what is the world and what's it made of, what, what, what's matter, right? Um, what's not matter? Uh, right. What's a human being? Where does a human being fit in the universe? What are human beings supposed to do? So these, these questions are addressed, and philosophers in the, in the Greek world are addressing the same questions. But the philosophers, by and large, not always, but by and large, don't have in their philosophical writing devotional motives. Now, you can't ever really make a, a sharp exclusion of devotional motives because you know, there's a certain sense in which Socrates had devotional motives. I think there's of a the certain sense in which Plato. The Stoics as well. It's really hard to Stoic. take the take the devotional side out That's of Stoicism. Absolutely. Right, but then in that in, in that case, it, it gets a little remote for a, a lot of a lot of people who aren't philosophers because. From a stoic point of view, everything is God. Yeah. Um, so if everything is God and nothing isn't, so then you know where do we go from there? Right. Most people want more distinctions than that. The, so the the devotional literature is also theoretical literature, and what that comes down to is that the devotions, which are meant to be guided by the by the texts, have a theoretical underpinning. But the theoretical underpinning isn't laid out in any precise, exact, crisp conceptually clear way. That wasn't the point. It wasn't that the people who were writing a text were incapable of that. 
Some of them probably were and some of them probably weren't. But it wasn't their job. That's not what they were doing. What they did was they picked up ordinary um, notions about, you know, about cosmology, moral philosophy, metaphysics, and they said, all right, I'm writing this part of this particular treatise, and I'm going to talk about, let's say, the cosmos. Um, um, I'm going to use that word, um, uh, that Greek word. And carried by that word, depending on your point of view, depending on whether your point of view is Stoic or Aristotelian or Platonic or Pythagorean or whatever it might be, that word brought lots of baggage with it, lots of philosophical baggage. Well, that's the theory. It's that philosophical baggage that comes along with the very language of the text. That's what's meant by theory. So again, it's not theory in the way that, you know, there's a theory of quantum mechanics. It's not just as it's not technical in the way that the wiring diagram for your microphone is technical. Mm. Different sense of technical and a different sense of theoretical. Now, how unitary is your reading of the theory behind the Hermetic texts. Let's not even talk about the Hermetic texts. Let's talk about the Corpus Hermeticum because the the, the Hermetic text right. okay. is way too big. Sure, Let, just talking about bigger, the, bigger the Corpus. Yeah. How unitary yeah. is your reading? For the Corpus, How? it's not it's not unitary at all. It fractures in a number of ways. It fractures mainly along one line of cleavage, and that's um, a line that divides pessimism from optimism. Okay, the pessimism or optimism is about the nature of the world and um, the place of human beings in the world. What, you know, what's going to happen to me? Um, and how, how hard is it going to be for me to avoid having bad things happen to me, right? So there are many texts um, in, the, in the 17 deriving Greek uh, treatises which take a very dim view, which are very bleak and uh, kind of hopeless. There are others which are sort of ebulliently optimistic. and. This was one motivation for some of the early scholarship, late 19th, early 20th century scholarship on the Hermetica, to get excited about putting different texts into different categories in order to argue that they couldn't have poss possibly have come from the same place, that they had to have, in some sense, different, different origins. And that, in turn, motivated some of the resistance to seeing the texts as having any devotional content at all. You know, just as you, you were saying earlier about, about you know, how Fastigier reacted very, very strongly against um, the notion of an Egyptian setting for the Hermetica. At the same time, there was, um, uh, there was strong resistance to the idea that the texts were actually had a devotional, had devotional uses. Well, we, you know, we have no idea what their devotional uses were in the sense that we do have some idea about devotional uses for fragments of early Christian prayers. Uh, True. Because of the institutional survival of Christianity, you know, we, we know where the catacombs are. Um, we can go down there and look at them. And, but there's nothing like that physically, archaeologically, right behind the Hermetic. So it, we don't really know what the, let's say, we don't know what, if there were liturgies. We don't know what those liturgies were, right? We, mm. we really don't have any idea. In connection with this body of literature, however, this body of literature in the larger sense, literature that in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, classicists thought of as like the Hermetica. And here I'm talking about the Greek magical papyri, mm -hmm. which are technical in a the sense. They think of instructions for you know how to do things. Well, 
the most famous of these papyris, a papyrus uh, which in the late 19th century was called the Mithras Liturgy. And that's because it was read as a, a literally, a, literally a liturgy, uh, a prayer book um, for rituals involving Mithras. Right? N nobody could push the reading of the Hermetica that far, but some people pushed it pretty far in that direction, um, and there was a there was a you know a, a backlash um, against that. Despite that, I think if you look at them now, for me, it's when I read them, it's hard for me to see them as anything but devotional. Okay. They they seem to address these beings who who aren't human with certain motivations. These motivations have to do with um um you know, who am I? What's happening to me? How can I prevent how can I have good things happen to me, prevent bad things happen to me? What steps do I take? in order to do that. Those questions seem to be front and center in the Hermetica. And one can, you know, one can easily imagine some of the texts, like for example, the ending of Corpus Hermeticum 1, or the hymn that you see in, in Corpus Hermeticum 13. One can easily imagine those pieces of the text being used liturgically. Yeah. We have no idea whether they were, right? And they, um, they might simply have been literary artifacts in the sense that some you know, in the, in literary traditions, plays have been written and uh, regarded as closet dramas. In other words, they were never meant to be performed, but they were written, given a literary structure, as if they were meant to be performed. So, hmm. so these could have been like that. Nobody, nobody knows. Nobody knows the answer. Now, vis-a-vis -vis this cleavage between the um, uh, anti-cosmic pessimist Hermetica and the optimist Hermetica, uh -huh. which any reader yeah. of the text will see there, what do you make of... Mm -hmm. Fowden's reading, whereby you can sort of iron out these apparent differences by looking at the text as regarding different stages of religious, philosophic, even maybe initiatory progress. That's a very plausible idea. Um, uh, it, you know, it's perfectly reasonable to think at a certain stage of one's spiritual journey, um, and let's imagine that the, the people who are using the Hermetic and writing them think they're on a spiritual journey. At a certain stage, you know, the news is really bad. Things are terrible. Um, but then the whole point of the journey is to uh, participate in some kind of process, achieve some kind of change, and then get to a better place. Yeah, that's a perfectly feasible, I mean, perfectly plausible story. The, um, it's a pattern, for example, that fits the Eleusinian Mysteries as far as we know, mm. because of course we don't know much about them either, um, because they were they were secrets. Um, yeah. But it's it's not anything. It's not. I mean, I, I think um, Fountain's idea is a you know it's a brilliant idea. It's a it's a it's a very useful way of categorizing the the text. But again, we just don't know. I mean, we don't know that the people themselves thought this particular side of the or let's say this particular number of texts as is for initiatory purposes, um, and this other side for some other um, salvific purpose. It's not, we don't know that. Um, uh, we can't know that in a, so, in a state of the current evidence. So <clears throat> you're, you like it as a plausible reading, but you're, you don't think, is it, tell me if this is a, a good summary of, of your position. You, li you like the reading, you think it's plausible and ingenious, but um, you just don't think we have enough evidence to say definitely right. Yeah. No, I don't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it ingenious. Usually, when people like me call things ingenious, yeah. it means we don't believe them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, indeed. Now, what I call it brilliant, and I, I think it is brilliant. It's a brilliant book. And by saying it's plausible, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to diminish it in, in any way. What I mean is that, yeah, it's a, it's as good a way as, look, you, here you've got this, this large body of texts, and the, um, the obvious thing to do from the point of view of, of scholarly analysis is to categorize them, right? To, to, to say they're some of this kind, some of that kind, some of some other kind. So I do that in the way that I do it um, 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 as between I, the categories I like to use are devotional, theoretical, technical, and so forth. That's plausible too, right? Hmm. Um, but it's no more than plausible. So in that way, I mean that what Fountain's categories are no more than plausible, but mine are exactly, have exactly the same status as Great. far as I'm concerned. Great. Um, so I like how you don't lean too hard on the evidence. You're you're careful to consider how much weight the evidence will actually take. And in the case of these very messy texts, which are not in a good state in the first place, and also lack a lot of the contextual detail we would love to have but don't, you can't lean on them that hard before you start to be speculating. Now, another there are other ways the, that you can um, sort the texts. But it doesn't. I think they have less to do with um, content than with form. Right. Gotcha. So some some of the some of the seventeen Greek discourses are more dialogic than others. Mm. There's you know some of them are uh, in some of them. There's a very pronounced visible conversation going on between a. Typically, it's between an older authority figure and a younger student figure right um, and then and this conversation happens sometimes there are more than two people and in 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 some of the treatises that that's um either absent or almost totally absent and they're they're presented more as just bald statements of devotional fact um about ab about the world this is how i see the world now in some cases that's probably a matter of textual accident, remembering that these these texts, as they survived, survived for two thousand years in some cases in a um, or at least fifteen hundred years in a um, in a manuscript tradition and or manuscript traditions. And one thing that happens in manuscript traditions is that the the pages most likely to be damaged are page one and the last page because they're on the outside. So if you have a if you had a text that was being um, transmitted as a manuscript, particularly for devotional purposes, and someone so that it's being handled a lot. You mean being handled? Yeah, and somebody owns it, right? It takes it back and forth from someplace, and then you know that person dies, and it's passed on to the person's children. And uh, the the pieces most likely not to survive are the first page and the last page. And what's on the first page? What you're typically going to have is you're going to have an introduction to the characters, right? So the characters might not show up. And also, they might not be, as it were, dismissed on the last page. So, in the you know, in some of them, in some of the seventeen treatises, you have a very, very strong sense of introduction to the speakers. Here they are, um, and then they start to talk. But in others, that's not that's not as prominent. Mm. So, some we have sort of quasi titles. Now, titles are a bit yeah. dodgy in, in antiquity, but the things like Hermes prostat, so Hermes to tat. Um, and that will have traveled in the manuscript yeah, tradition. Yeah, and I would regard the titles as, except on the basis of really, really strong evidence of a kind that's very hard to come by, is almost always being artifacts of the 
text transmission, right? And not of the. I mean, you know, for example, you and I, when we go into a bookstore in the, in the days when there used to be bookstores, we went into a bookstore. We you know we pick up a book, and what we expect to see on the, uh, at the up at the front of the book is a, is a title, an author, etc., a title page. Well, that's a structure that had to be invented. You know, it didn't grow on trees. Somebody had to do that. So if you look at Latin manuscripts, for example, before the invention of printing, 14th century and earlier, you don't see that. Um, the first thing that you see on the front end of a manuscript is a thing called an incipit. The Latin word incipit, here begins. So here begins, etc. And then you've got the title of the book. Sometimes you won't get an author at all. The same thing with, with these Greek manuscripts. So when you have some of the manuscripts that some of the texts, I'm sorry, not manuscripts, some of the texts that survive, not in the 17 treatises that I translated, but in the Stabius fragments, which Cambridge has now published, as you know, which is very nice. Stabius, when he collected these, had a strong motivation to give these things headings, titles, because he, because that's the kind of book he was writing, an anthology. Mm-hmm. So he would had a motive to talk about you know that this one that one the next one so famously the title of one of his one of the pieces that he collected was Corey Kasmu now whether that's his title or whether he got it from someplace I don't, I don't know but it, I'd say in general it's a it's a pretty strong rule of thumb to be suspicious of titles of texts yeah because there's a very very strong motivation to add them in yeah. the process of, of text transmission. And that strong motivation is, of course, part of the impulse to categorize them. To you know, say, well, I think this one, these texts are about that, and I think these texts are about something else, so I'll, give, I'll use this title. I wouldn't put very much weight on the titles at all. Hmm. And they, in a way, they tend to be more like a, a dramatis personae than a, than a title if we want to use a, a play. As, as an example. So Shakespeare's Hamlet has the title Hamlet, but then it has a dramatis personae, mm-hmm. which is who's in this play. Duk, right. duk, 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 duk. And that's yeah. what these titles tend yeah, some, to be. Some of them are like that. Yeah. Some, in fact, the titles that we have for some of them are just in the form of X to Y, yeah. meaning that X is talking to Y. Now, some of the other titles, I think, have, have a stronger argument for Authenticity, particularly the title of Corpus Medicum One, the Poimandres. Mm. Poimandres, and the reason for that is that nobody really knows what it means. Yeah, um, I know there've been all kinds of guesses about what it means. You know, there are some theories that take it back to a particular Egyptian, a couple of Egyptian words, and others that that give a Greek etymology, and and you know, nobody's sure. Well, that one is so, I think, uninformative as a title that it's hard to imagine a, a classifier of, of texts using it to classify. Right. So maybe that one's for real, right? So. Yeah. Okay. So using a kind of Lectio Difficilior criterion to say, well, this is yeah. so weird that it probably was really mm-hmm. a title of sorts, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of exactly. calling it right. Hermes to the Noose or something like that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you feel about the current trend in scholarship toward... Oh trying to make a more robust reconstruction of hermetic religion, let's call it, or uh, the hermetic way, as the ancients sometimes call it, in antiquity, than uh-huh. 
then you you I mean you just don't even try that in your introduction to your book for example you mm-hmm. you right. very you do right. you do the sensible careful thing and say well we have these texts mm-hmm. and this is what we know about them but there've been a number of recent attempts yeah. to try to get into the the way of this let's call it spirituality behind these texts so I'm thinking of Christian Bull uh-huh. and Anna van der Kerschov and um, uh-huh. others uh-huh. What do you make of these? Yeah, I, yeah, my my attitude toward such efforts is to say, "Hooray! I'm I'm glad that people are trying to read the texts in new ways, because that's always you know that that's what scholarship should do. We should try to read the text in new ways." My sense is that is that that kind of reading of these particular texts could only make progress in one of two ways. First way we'd have to discover more new texts in the way that, for example, you know, Mahé used the Armenian text and the Coptic texts that, that, that caused a lot of progress. So that could happen. And as far as I know, it hasn't. The second thing, and I think more likely in this context, uh, what we're effectively what we're doing is we're talking about liturgy, I guess, um, is archaeology. The archaeologists could dig up things which through various lines of cause and effect could be related to the you know somebody could dig up a a little room someplace in the in the delta of Egypt or farther south and in a little room you could find an image of of Toth and you could find a certain prayer and you know and then and then the the room would be set up in a way where its functions from an archaeological point of view would be liturgical so that could happen mm. um, but I think it would take one of it would take what the one thing or the other or both. You'd have to either have substantial new evidence of the textual side, or you'd have to have substantial archaeological evidence, or both, in order to make a really strong statement of that kind. I think it's short of that, it's perfectly reasonable to take the material that we already have, the, the texts as they stand, and to read them in a different way. Because I think only, only by reading the texts um, from many different points of view are we likely to get to a better understanding of them. You know, think about Plato's dialogues. Um, you had, you know, these three dozen texts, which had been read now for two and a half millennia, almost, and they've been read in wildly different ways, and have been understood to say wildly different things, wildly different things, and that's been productive. You know, the it's the learned back and forth over time that you know, that pushes the enterprise forward. So I think that can happen with a uh, with the Hermetica too, especially remembering that these are texts of approximately the same vintage. You know, they've been around since late antiquity, and that's a long time. And so they're, the, it's, they're texts of the kind about which one can achieve long-term perspective. A little while ago, for example, you mentioned something about the, about the Stoic content of the text and the stoic content of the text is quite visible and, and, um, and obvious. Well, we know a lot more about stoicism in the year 2020 than we did in the year 1820. We mm. just do, right? Um, and as that progress continues, then I think for people to, uh, to want to read the text in the way that you're describing, it, I think it's a, a perfectly productive and natural thing to do. I also think that the motivation is it almost speaks for itself because it, you know if 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 my reading of the text is correct, and if they they are predominantly 
devotional as I think they are, then it makes sense to ask, well, what was the devotion? Yeah. Um, um, and, and, and that means looking for liturgy or liturgies, more likely. Liturgy, hmm. That's what devotion is when it's a public practice, a, a communal practice. Now, that's a very interesting question. Um, the if, devotion, yes, because the devotion doesn't have to be collective. It can be, it can be private. It can be individual. Then you don't need a liturgy. And I wonder to what degree, especially late antique as we are in our in our thought world, and and also taking into account that the the Hermetica themselves refer to the kinds of sacrifice that are acceptable occasionally to noose to God as being a sacrifice of noose, right? Which which strikes me as mm-hmm. being something internal, strikes me as being something mm-hmm. contemplative, perhaps rather and obviously mm-hmm. rather than killing a a bullock in the public square, which had been the, yeah, the sort sure, of, sure. so there's that going on, which then opens the door to something a bit more private. I'm not saying not social in some way, but it doesn't, def- nec- we don't necessarily have to think about a congregation, which, which obviously, mm-hmm. you know, Festugier sort of over did that when he said, well, there was no congregation. Right. So therefore it's not religion. It's, right. it's a kind of something go. else, right. but that's not true. Right. Because we know that a religion, was he saying it from a Roman Catholic point of view? I think so. I think so. He was he was that talking is, about an ecclesia yeah. in a very specific sense, and then saying there is no ecclesia of the hermitists. So therefore, but it's like, yeah, well, no one's saying right. that there is. There could be something else going on. Right. And I, I wonder if I could just throw an idea at you. When I read the text of the Corpus Hermeticum in their dialogue format, which is correct me if I'm wrong, but almost always or always a teacher to a student in some form or another, someone mm-hmm. someone expounding mm-hmm. wisdom, and then someone else saying, ah, but what about this? Right. So please tell me more. I'm, this is fascinating. Right. How yeah, my right. soul longs to right. know. Sure. To me, this kind of would suggest some social arrangement whereby you have a disciple-student thing going on. Does that strike your scholarly funny bone as sort of having resonances with the texts? Well, again, I think it's I, I think it's possible that the construction of those and use of those roles in the in the Greek discourses reflects um, 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 the actual you know some some social practice, um, but um, I don't think that we can we can infer from the presence of those roles. In the structure that you described, in the Greek, Greek text, to the social existence of the of those roles. So, for example, if that argument worked, then we could infer from um, the voyages of Jason and you know on the Argo to you know all manner of interesting things, and we could if it, we could go into the Golden Fleece business. So, but so so you know obviously the, these things can be these things can be purely literary constructs and. Maybe that's maybe that's what they are, but maybe they aren't. And again, on the on the on the evidence we have, um, we can't know. On the other hand, what we can know is this: that there's there's a good deal of dialogical literature in the relevant languages, especially Greek, outside the Hermetica. Yeah. So if I'm a if I'm a if I'm literate in Greek, um, and I'm writing one of these texts around the time they were written, then I've got lots of models of text where there's a, there's a teacher, there's a student, and there's a conversation. Mm. Um, Plato's dialogues, for example. Yeah. 
And really, that's all you need. You know, that's the model, um, or that's a model. So they, 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 the, 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 the structures that in the in the texts, which are dialogic, don't have to come from any place in society. Um, they can come from other texts, right? Um, and they may have, or they may not have. Don't know. Well, Brian Copenhaver, you have given us a really wonderful set of I don't knows with which to approach the Hermetica. So. What we do know kind of is is nicely surrounded by the, what we don't know, and which I think is a really good way to mm. proceed with these sorts of texts. But I also really appreciate the fact that you are intrigued by and interested in the process of scholarly reaching out into that we don't know blank space on the map and trying oh, yeah. to create yeah. something and gradually maybe expanding the bit that we do know of the map bit by bit across generations. Yeah. Let me say yeah. one other thing, please like do. If I if I can, when I did first see your, or, or hear your podcast, one of the things that made me think about was the word esotericism, which I very much don't like, and I I, I don't like it for two reasons, which I'll give you. Uh, and when I say I don't like it, I mean I I don't mean that I you know I, I'm running for office against it. I mean that it, I just mean I I find it unhelpful as an analytic device. One reason I don't like it is that I find it anachronistic um, in a certain way. There's a phase of development in, in Western culture during which words ending in ISM and words ending in ISTIC became really important. And that's pretty much after the French Revolution. Right. Um, socialism, communism, it's capitalism, etc. And so from that time on, we've been given to um, think about large constellations of ideas in terms of isms um, and istics, right? And that's good because that's a, that's a cultural reality. There was no such thing when these texts were written. So that kind of high abstraction as a way of grouping things. And that, reification. You know, there. And reification, yeah. Um, the, the other reason is that if you, take, if you take the word seriously and you take this particular body of texts, the, the, the 17 Greek discourses, and you compare them, let's say, to other Greek texts of roughly the same vintage, Paul's epistles, mm. right? I take it that irreducibly the word esoteric has got to have two pieces in it. It's got to be about secrecy, and the secrecy has to be deliberate. Yes. Or it has to be about, maybe brought more broadly, it has to be about hiddenness. And the hiddenness has to be deliberate. So um, there's a sense in which we don't have the secret of intergalactic travel. Right. Not a secret like that. No. It's a different kind of secret. Somebody Absolutely. arranged it on purpose. So there's this. So there's this secrecy. Well, it, that same kind of secrecy, with the same vocabulary, basically, basically clustering around the Greek word mysterion. Yeah. Um, mystery. It's as front and center in Paul's epistle, first epistle to the Corinthians, as it is in the Hermetica. Yeah. And so on that ground, you're not going to get any kind of distinction between texts like Paul's epistles and these texts. Hmm. Now, according to me, that's okay, because I think they do come from basically the same impulse. But for many, many people who read these texts, one, one, one distinction they fiercely want to hold on to is the distinction between religion and magic. Right. Right, which, you know, I think isn't a very helpful distinction to make in, uh, analytically. So 
that's my trouble with the word es esotericism. Third thing I don't like about it is I find it as a word, I find it ugly. I I'll buy that. Aesthetically unpleasing. <laughs> Esotericism. Well, it so just kind of um, responding to the, all those objections, which I find all you know perfectly sensible. Uh, the last one first. It's too late for me to re rename the podcast now. Um, I think. Oh no 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 no! Esotericism. You, you, you didn't invent this. You you picked it up from Walter Hanegraaff, right? Walter Hanegraaff, but going back, I think to Antoine Fevre as the, the scholar who really put yeah. Western esotericism right. yeah, he said, on the map. I think he said esotericism. Yeah. He didn't say esotericism. He said esotericism. Exactly. Mistaken, right? He also would say okay. hermetism rather than hermeticism. Which is a little right. less, exactly, which is a little less ugly, according to me. <laughs> I'll buy that. I'll buy that. But, you know, um, that's, not, that's not important. Well, it's aesthetics matter. Um, but yeah. the fact that this historical field of inquiry has been founded in sort of the latter half of the 20th century has been hugely yeah. fruitful for the kind of religious research into the history of religions and philosophy and science and magic that I'm interested yeah. in, despite the fact that I don't think Western esotericism exists as a historical object. The The approach, and this uh -huh. might be of interest to you, there's actually a glossary on the Schwepp. It's a very little unknown kind of dusty corner of the website. And if you look at our working uh -huh. definition of esotericism it says see esoteric and we define mm. the esoteric as really a kind of speech mm. act so if someone is talking about a qualitatively higher form of knowledge now in the hermetica mm. this is either going to be called in the the um, theoretical hermetica that, that you've translated this will be called either nous noesis or gnosis for the most part but talking about it simply with rhetorics of hiding and revealing. I mean, if we look at mm -hmm. a, a text like the Apocryphon of John, any text that's called it calls itself Apocryphon, the hidden book, the secret book, mm -hmm. with many of these texts, we have no reason to think they were secret in any kind of social way. That They, they may well have been well, exactly. literally open. Nevertheless, they, I would they, call they, that... They undercut... They obviously, they undercut their own secrecy right. just by being books. So right? for me, right. that is an example of the esoteric in action. The esoteric isn't necessarily and often mm -hmm. is blatantly not about actually hiding anything. But what it is about mm -hmm. is broadcasting the fact that right. you have a secret, right? It's mm -hmm. saying we have That's a secret. Right. And not only that, possession. but it's, yep. it, it's a higher secret. It's a qualitatively different level secret. Mm -hmm. So so going about saying we have the nuclear codes is not esotericism. It's like right. you really do have a secret and mm -hmm. I'm glad it's a secret, mm -hmm. but it's not a, mm -hmm. a kind of qualitatively higher level of um, gnosis or something yeah, like that. No, that's very helpful. I, I hadn't thought about it in those terms. That's very helpful. So this is the way I approach it as a, as a kind of speech act that we find. Speech act, but also a, a, it can be gestural. It can be symbolic. Uh, um, the, right. the reference to the sure, mysteries sure. Is, is the main language in the Greek world for this sort of thing. And mm -hmm. as you say, mm -hmm. Epistles of Paul, 2 Corinthians, where he talks about going, someone he knows might be him, might be someone else, mm -hmm. who went to the third heavens mm -hmm. and had things unutterable mm -hmm. revealed to him. Um, mm -hmm. This is mm -hmm. this is the esoteric at its finest in my in my book. Uh -huh. So, so what, what word does he use for unutterable? Aporeta, I believe. I don't remember. Aporeta? It's either okay. that or Doesn't arreta. Know? Okay. 
Because, you know, that, that word, not the porita, but areta, becomes, that, that becomes a very important word later in, uh, in you know, it's, a, it's, it's the word that eventually in Latin, perversely, uh, yeah. becomes occultus, even though it, occultus is about um, seeing and, and areta is about hearing. But it, there's a flip. And I think I've always, when, one of my unfulfilled research ambitions is, as I would, I have to bet that that happened sometime between uh, around the fourth or fifth century and around the eighth century, and it happened in Arabic. But I, but I, I don't, you know, I don't read Arabic. I read Hebrew. I don't read Arabic. Um, so I've never been able to, to run that down. But I bet you that's where it happened. It happens, you know, it's, it's going to happen in probably in a medical author during that period who was reading Galen because Galen talks a good deal about the areta in his, in his medical treatises. So there's probably a, an Arab, maybe even a Muslim author who's writing, you know, who's using Galen and who sees this. And then somehow the, the valence flips from the auditory to the, the visual. Um, and then we get a cultus. In when it goes back into Latin. Then of course, yeah. And then in the later on, at the end of the story in the 16th and 17th centuries, there's this huge transformation when, and I'll do this very briefly, late 16th century, when people in the kind of material end of the philosophical tradition, also physicians, when they talked about magical properties, um, and they talked about one of their features being that the properties themselves, as opposed to their effects, couldn't be sensed. Right. The, the sense that they focused on was um, haptic you touch. You can't feel um, them. And mm. it was because of that, well, because of hot, cold, wet, and dry. Because the fundament, the, 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 the primitives of physical explanation still by the late 16th century in Aristotelian physics, the primitives are haptic, they're not optic. And then from that period, you get this huge transformation with Galileo and um, Descartes. And Descartes, and they're, they're, they, they don't care about haptic. Um, they're, all, they're very much about the optical. And for that reason, for them, the tradition of, of speculation about magical powers as being a cult to them, that was a big threat, um, right. because it had to do with with their their stock and trade, which was the visible as what was fundamentally explanatory. Um, but that's a long way from where we were today. So forgive me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no forgiveness needed for a jaunt through um, fascinating intellectual history up to the up to the early modern period. Yeah. Brian Copenhaver, thank you again for this uh, introduction to the Hermetica, introduction to the texts, introduction to the original context, as much as we know about it, and some drawing of boundaries of what we can say about our Corpus Hermeticum, the, in the narrow sense, the, the Corpus Hermeticum that you translated back in the day. Stay esoteric. Oh, Earl, thanks very much. Uh, your, your Schweppes project is delightful, and it's great fun to talk to you about these things.